Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. I brought some props up here. I have a magazine. If anybody would like to rent it out during the service, and instead of listening, you're welcome to. It's $1,000 a minute. Um, we need to pay for this building. Um, <clears throat> so this morning, I want to begin. Uh, as always, my commitment to you is to be honest with you. Sometimes I will be much more transparent with you than other times, and today I intend to be both honest and transparent as I begin with one of my greatest struggles as a minister, and that is witnessing. Okay, so let me give you full disclosure on this. It's not so much that I have trouble witnessing with people. It's that I have trouble witnessing the way I was taught. And so what I would love to do this morning is take you uh, by the collective neck of Crestwood Baptist Church and shake a little bit and see what falls out on this topic of sharing Christ with our friends. I grew up in a time, and I suspect it's true for many of us in here, that we grew up in a time where it was expected and yet at the same time it was fairly rare for us to share our faith, witness with people. We call it evangelism, we can call it a lot of different things, but when it comes to the responsibility we have of sharing Christ with other people, it seems to have been this pattern throughout my life, at least as a minister, where it is talked about a lot, but it's just not done much. And one of the reasons, I think, for that, or at least one of the ways we've approached that is because we uh, seem to not be sure what it is that we're supposed to say. Let me take you back a little bit in time to a friend of mine. His name was George. George was a salesman, and he was a really good salesman. As a matter of fact, George, uh, the time that I was involved in his life, George was uh, running a company that sold dairy, used dairy equipment from the United States to dairy and dairy owners in Mexico. And so his shop was on our side of the river down in Rio Grande Valley when I lived down there. And uh, so he would shop all over the United States and take used dairy equipment bring it down, truck it down. Most of it was stainless steel stuff, high-end kind of uh, stuff, and he would have to try to sell it down into Mexico. And I, I was over at his place one time talking to him, and I said, uh, I, I just don't think I could do what you do. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, I just don't think I'd be a very good salesman. He said, why is that? And I said, because when somebody tells me, no, I don't want that, then I'm good with that. And if they tell me I don't need that, then I just, I, there's no way I could force myself to try to sell them something if they said they didn't want it or didn't need it. He said, you're right. You'd never make it as a salesman. He said, for me, I don't even start working until they tell me no. He said, before they tell me no, if I sell them something, I'm just a delivery man. They need what that is, and I sell it to them, I just deliver it. But when I really earn my money as a salesman is when they tell me no. 
Now, I want to take that mentality because that's hard for me. Somebody tells me, you know, you know I, I don't like phone stuff. You know, somebody tries to sell me something over the phone. I tell them no, and that just seems like it opens the door for them to tell me all the other reasons that I should buy what they're selling. I don't want it. That doesn't, doesn't drill. How is it with you and the Christian message? When you talk to people about Christ, if you do, and they respond to you with either a verbal no or one of those body language no's that says, essentially, how can I get out of this as quickly as I possibly can? How do you respond to that? So now I'm back to our history and how we have tended to do this through the years. I brought this as a visual aid for you. This is a binder. It has information inside well over 200 pages worth of stuff. And it is the training manual that I had to go uh, use and go through the course when I was in seminary working on my master's degree, uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And I had to have, before they would let me graduate, I had to take a class called personal evangelism. I guess the reason that Southwestern had us take that class is they didn't think it was appropriate for a preacher to go through uh, and get their degree and go work at a local church without knowing how to lead somebody to Christ. And so they made us take a personal evangelism class. And the curriculum for that class was this binder, or what's in the binder, more specifically, And it is a binder, and on the front of it, and all through it is this title of the thing called Continual Witness Training, CWT. And CWT became the training manual for a generation or more of young Baptist preachers coming through who now are old Baptist preachers, having gone through this, and the expectation was that we would take this in seminary take it to the local church where we were to be pastors or staff members in some way, and then we would teach that to our people. Now, I'm skeptical enough, and I kind of look behind things like that, and I realize I know what I had to pay for this, and I know that in their mind, the idea was if we could just get this to get the preachers to go to the local church and push it, then we could make a lot of money from all of the different courses we would teach. And Baptists for many years taught this and other kinds of evangelism training. Now, here's my rub with that. That was a long time ago. I graduated from that school in 1991. And so now we are 25 years later, if my math is right. How is the Christian enterprise in America these days? So in other words... In two and a half decades where this was pushed through us as pastors, you would expect that we would be really good at evangelism. Well, that might be true, and it might be that it was effective, although I never really found it to be that effective. My question is, I wonder if this stuff was designed for us or for the people we were trying to reach. Now, they say that it was designed for the people we're trying to reach, 
Because I have here just kind of a general outline of the model presentation they told us to use. They made us memorize this. We went in for the final exam and it was the entire contents of that drilled down to about four pages and it was just a bunch of blank spaces and we had to have the exact word in every space. What they taught us was a canned approach and we were supposed to use it. And it all started with a connection tool that was designed for me as one using this, trying to witness to somebody about Jesus Christ and to say to them, you say these exact words every time. And then they would give us transition sentences. It all started this whole attempt to connect with somebody with the, um, the letters F-I-R-E, each one standing for a different step. The first one is family. And their desire was for us to go in and talk to people and ask questions about their family as a way of connecting. Because most people like to talk about their family, either how evil they are or how great they are. There's a transition sentence. Do you have any special hobbies? And then we go to the I. And the I stood for interests. And so we start talking about, you know, it's deer season, bow season, um, those kind of things. LSU football, Texas A&M football. And, and here's, here's the deal. This is the rub point for me. It was a plastic setup to act like we were interested in the other person when in reality, all we really wanted was to give them our spiel. I know this sounds awfully negative, and the reason it does is because I'm awfully negative about this, about the way we were trained to do it. And the reason I'm awfully negative about it is because it doesn't seem to have worked. Let me give you a case in point now to the magazine. I get this magazine once a year. I did not subscribe to it. I have never sent them any money, nor do I intend to. Not that it's a bad magazine. I read it the one time a year that they send it to me for free. Uh, But it is Outreach Magazine, and once a year, Outreach Magazine sends to Baptist pastors the issue that shows the 100 best churches at at church growth. In other words, those churches that are doing best at getting bigger. I don't know if they do that because pastors just love beating themselves up for not making the list of 100 or what. But in this article, or there is an article in this magazine that I want to kind of touch base with you about. I brought it because I want to read specifically and give you the guy's words. I hate it when preachers read stuff uh, other than scripture, but in this case, I'm going to do that because I want you to hear what he has to say. They're interviewing a guy who pastors a large church in Portland, Oregon. Now, if you're not really all that familiar... Portland, Oregon is a long way from Lumberton, Texas. And I'm not talking geography here. So one of the things that uh, they tell us in church life is, or not just church life, but just in in our world at large and especially in American culture and society, that great movements begin on the West Coast sometimes on the East Coast, but usually on the West Coast, and they just kind of march across the United States. Uh, For instance, the hippie movement. Some of you I'm looking out there, and some of you I'm sure made great hippies. A long time ago now, but, you know, the West Coast Coast was a 
kind of a central place for a lot of that kind of stuff and a lot of fads and gimmicks and all that kind of stuff start over there and just march towards the east. Uh, and so they pick up on that in this article. And they're interviewing John Mark Comer, and he is pastor of a church in Portland or in the Portland area. And here's what he has to say, and I'm going to kind of break it down. I'll start reading and interrupt a little bit. Here's what he has to say. Portland is a great example of Western secular society. It is a canary in the American mine, M-I-N-E. Now, the reference that he's giving there, as I understand, it goes back to the early days of mining when methane gas would build and that kind of stuff, and it would kind of lull the miners into a false sense of everything's cool until it was not cool, and then they would asphyxiate there, and so they would take, because canaries were allegedly more susceptible to that gas, then they would take canaries in with them and keep an eye on them, and if a canary died, that meant the gas buildup was getting bad and they needed to exit the mine. At least that's my understanding of it all. And so, John Mark Comer, this pastor, says that Portland is the canary in the American mine. We're, he says, we are 30 to 50 years behind most European cities in terms of secularization. He means by that that West Coast society mimics European society, but it's on a time delay of about 30 years or so. That's important when you realize what he's, the point that he's making. So I'll finish the point and I'll come back and speak to that. We're 30 to 50 years behind most European cities in terms of secularization, but easily 30 to 50 years ahead of most of the rest of America. So if these fads and culture starts on the West Coast and moves across, Portland and the West Coast is 30 to 50 years behind Europe, 30 to 50 years ahead of us, then in other words, what you see in Portland today will be us in 30 years or so, if it all follows. Well, here's what's troubling about that to me and the reason I bring it to you. I have a friend who is pursuing an advanced degree, a terminal degree in England or Great Britain. And so he travels over there from time to time. And when he's over there working on a terminal degree in churches, particularly in Old Testament, he visits churches while he's over there. And he finds that these great edifices, these architectural marvels, huge stone churches, some of them centuries old that seat thousand people or more, most of them on any given Sunday will have less than a hundred people in them. And most of those hundred people in them will be 50, 60, 70 years old. Secularization in Europe has deemed the church to be of no consequence. And so this pastor in Portland, if he is even close to being right, saying that Portland mimics Europe, but they're 30 years behind, and we look at how different we are from West Coast thinking, we're 30 to 50 years behind them. As bad as it is here as a reaction to Christianity, how much worse might it get? And all of that comes under the umbrella of a push in church circles, at least in the education process of church pastors, 
to dumb down evangelism and to reduce it to nothing more than a canned speech. That's my hang-up with the way I was taught. That's my hang-up with the way many churches still try to operate where a handful of people get trained up to be the God squad and they go out and do cold knocks and try to spring something on somebody on their front porch and try to get them to trust Jesus. Something's wrong with that and here's what's wrong with that. Baptisms in churches are way down. Somewhere we've missed something of the mark that Jesus said, I happen to believe that the way we have opted for doing this presents a real problem for Jesus trying to get through to some people. Take, for instance, John chapter 3. Now, you don't have to turn there because I'm just going to reference it, but you can go back and check it out later. But in John chapter 3, we have this encounter that Jesus had with a Pharisee who comes to him by night. His name is Nicodemus, and he comes in, and he asks Jesus. Actually, he tries to butter Jesus up and give him some real highfalutin kind of a, a compliment, and Jesus cuts to the chase and says, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting. When you go back and you look at the way Jesus talked about what we would call witnessing or evangelism, when Jesus did that, he offers life to those people. But typically, the way I was trained at least, and many of us were trained, when we go to a witnessing kind of an encounter like that, we try to get them into heaven instead of getting heaven into them. Isn't it true that the two primary, well, the two primary questions of this uh, of, uh, continual witness training stuff is, if you died tonight, what assurances that you have that you would be in heaven? Or if you're standing at the door of the gates of heaven and God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That's the way we have pushed it. And so we've pushed the people, don't you want to be able to go to heaven when you die? Now, I suspect that I've never run into anybody who said no to that. I don't think I've ever met anybody who said, no, I'm not really interested in going to heaven when I die. Now, I've known a lot of people who said, hey, it's too late for me. There ain't a chance in the world I could make it into heaven. Well, that gives room for talking, but I've never met anybody who didn't want to go there. But we were trained to sell a future after death. And that's never Jesus. Well, it's not never, but it's just really not the norm for Jesus when he talks to people about life. So I want to come back to the book of Acts now, and let's look a little bit about what's here. Because I think that Luke has something for us as we step into the fix. And I, I have entitled this series, as we're, we're going to begin to work our way through the book of Acts, we're four weeks in and we've made it about eight verses or so. So, in other words, we're going to be here a long time. We're not going to try to do verse by verse all the way through, but we're going to systematically work our way through and see how the early church engaged their culture. How did this group of disciples take this movement? It's more than a movement, but how did they take this this little central group of disciples who followed Jesus and by the end of the book of Acts they're pressing the edges of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? And part of the answer to that is they engaged people in a valid way 
and the Holy Spirit transformed lives. So in the book of Acts, as we begin our way into this, we're in verse 1. We'll only be in the first two verses this morning. And this is going backwards, but that's okay. I wanted to make sure that we got this out there. The book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Actually, we're going to just be in verse 1. Because there's enough in that little statement right there to give us something to work on. But let's go ahead and read verse 2 to get it in perspective. Back to verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what we find Luke doing here is beginning uh, in such a way that it gives us a little bit of insight in how to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. I just said a mouthful, and we'll try to elaborate on some of that in a minute, but here's the way that he essentially does that. He gives us a backward look, and he gives us a forward look. Both of those occur in verse 1, and they provide the groundwork for us in stepping out of this building into a world that is progressively secularized. We live in what those Muckety-muck people who look at the times and put labels on them. We live in what is considered to be a post-Christian, post-church age in America. How do we step into that as effective witnesses for Christ? Luke gives us a model. It's his own personal revelation of how he approaches this writing. But it becomes something of a model for us. There is that backward look and then that forward look. So we start with the backward part. But actually, we really need to start with where we are. Because you can't, even if you have a GPS and you're trying to get directions to some place, you have to know where you are and where you're starting from if you're going to get there. And so you go to Google Maps and they say, hey, okay, I want, I want you to tell me, how do I get to Kalamazoo, Michigan? The first thing it wants to know is, where are you? Well, actually, they've built it in there so that they know where you are. Don't, you know, don't freak out about that too much, but they know where you are, what you ate for breakfast, and what you're thinking now, and all that kind of stuff. You have to start with where you are. And I've just spent about 10 minutes or so trying to establish for us that where we are is in a post-church world. We're in a world that says to us as Christian people, that probably is okay for you, although we're not too sure about that, but we sure don't want it for us. That's where we are. So we start there. But Luke here in this first part of this moves us to look backwards to help us to get it right on how do we move forward. So as we look backward, here's the part that I, I like to say. We, we, we have that just the facts kind of mentality. This is how I was trained to do evangelism. It's that part that says, okay, you need to know all the right verses and how to use them in the right order. You ever heard, raise your hand if you, you ever heard of the Roman road approach to witnessing? Many of us know that, okay? Uh, CWT is another one. Evangelism explosion was another one. We had all these neat little training modules that we went through to teach people the facts about how to lead somebody to trust Christ. That's another kind of a code word we come back to. What does it mean to trust Christ? But you start with the facts. 
And it's not that starting with the facts like we are learning the facts like we did before is wrong. Uh, it's absolutely necessary. The problem comes as we stop there. So case in point with this, let's just go ahead and kind of open it up a little bit. When we do the Roman road, for instance, one of the things where you start in what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, and you can kind of jump around, and it's a little bit tricky to learn it because it doesn't go in chronological order the way we think. We think it ought to be in chapter 1, then 2, 3, 4, etc. kind of jumps around a little bit. But one of the things that has to happen if you're going to know Christ, trust Christ as your Savior, what's the first thing that has to happen? You didn't go to class, did you? What's the first thing that has to happen for somebody to get saved? They have to be lost. All right. I'm, I'm not really sure how to take what I'm seeing from y'all here. Okay. I know that I started off on a, like a really sour note. I, you know, I hate all of this stuff we've done. Um, you can't be saved if you don't know you're lost. And so in the book of Romans, a Roman road, we talk about for all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. So that's where you begin the process. So we learn that. That's one of those facts. It's a verse of scripture. You need to learn that. You need to internalize that. And I'm still as, as down on our method as I have been this morning, I'm still going to say, you got to get this part down. Because there are key truths that are necessary for someone to take the step that we have always been taught they need to take. But here's what happens. Well, let me go show you, show you where Luke does that here. In, in the first verse, in the first book, just full stop right there. Sometimes the best Bible study you can do is to stop and pay attention to what's being said. In the first book, O Theophilus, so Luke here points backwards to volume one in his two-volume set about this movement, this revolution, this spiritual outbreaking of the presence of God. Volume one was the gospel of Luke. And if we go to Luke chapter one, I'll read this for you. You may not have time to get there. But in Luke chapter one, verse one, here's what he's referring to over there in Acts one. He says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the backwards look of Acts 1.1 is Luke pointing Theophilus backwards to this entire volume one that we call the gospel, the good news, the life story of Jesus Christ. Now, when I talk about just the facts, I'm talking more than just a handful of verses of Scripture out of the book of Romans or anywhere else. The facts in this case are critical. We cannot get away from the reality that the kingdom of God made its entrance into the human condition best in Jesus Christ. And Luke writes an entire gospel to highlight that. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments as we close, but let me highlight this truth for us. Jesus as the central, the only one through whom life can be gotten. 
It requires of us a denial of self, an embrace of Jesus as the Son of God, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, a trusting in him and only him for eternal life. Everybody with me on that? Okay. All right. Well, I hope you get with me on that because that's truth. Okay. That's the facts. Only Jesus offers salvation. If we look for it anywhere else, we will be left wanting in the end. Salvation only through Christ. We place our trust in him. Luke lays out the life of Jesus in his gospel. And in beginning the book of Acts, he points back to that as a point of reference. But here's some of the pitfalls I think we need to watch out for. We need to be careful that we don't let our witnessing devolve into data transfer. This is part of the rub that I have with the way we learned, or at least I did. This morning, I got up and I took the study that I had done for today's sermon. It was here in my head. And I transferred that data into my computer at home. And then I took that data, my computer at home, and I saved the sermon notes file to the cloud so that I could always have it. Now, when we talk about saving it to the cloud, 30 years ago, that would have meant something much different than it is now, right? But it's part of our everyday thinking now. So just, let me, I'm not you know, like paranoid or conspiracy theorist or any of that kind of stuff. I know they're after me, so I'm not, it's not a conspiracy theory at all. Um, when we say we're going to save it to the cloud, don't be so naive as to believe that it's just out there and it's safe, all right? That data that I transferred today from my head to my computer and from my computer to the cloud, that data resides on somebody's server somewhere, Okay, I'm good with that. Maybe they'll hack into that and read some of the stuff that we're trying to, and maybe somebody gets saved out of it. Who knows? Okay, but I also, because I am not a trusting person as a rule, uh, I did not believe that just because I saved it to the cloud that I could get to the office and access it. I've been burned like that a few times where I got here and the internet or something like that was out and all of a sudden it's okay. So, so I emailed it from my office computer at home to my church computer that I had with me, Surface, in the same room, on the same desk, but I sent it through channels, through the air, into that other computer so that when I got here, same set of data now, from here to my office computer, from my office computer to the cloud, from my office computer to my church computer, from my church computer when I got here, I wirelessly printed it on our church printer. Now, you're with me on all of that, right? Seems like a long way to go for not much. Stay with me. I think that is a great picture of the way I was trained and many of us were trained for evangelism. We have this piece of information and we're going to broadcast it to as many different entry places as we can. Those entry places took the form of people. 
The problem that I have with that, I've already said that we need the right truth. The data part of this is very important. But when we just take our responsibility to witness as a data transfer, then we leave the person that we're dealing with with the impression that it's really about us, not about them. Now, we built this in. We built this in to the approach that I was given. And that is, we had these nice little sayings that help explain away things. Like, for instance, I remember I was doing one of those witness training things. And part of the class was when we finished, we had to go out and we had to actually practice what we had done. And so we asked people in the church to submit names of their friends that they weren't going to witness to, but they wanted the God squad, the hit team at church to go do it. And so they give us these names and we go show up at their house, totally unannounced. Cold visits, is that what they call that? I call them offensive visits. And so we show up. It's a sneak attack. They don't know we're coming. We'll catch them off guard. Maybe, maybe we'll notch our gun belt. We got us another one today. So we show up and we take the data transfer approach. We put it out on them. And, and they, most of the time for me, they were polite, but they were resistant. So we go back to the church for the reporting time. And when it gets laid out, well, you know, we got to share with five different people. Nobody accepted Christ, but we shared with five different people. The teacher was trained to say to us, well, you know, it's not your responsibility what the decision they make is. Your responsibility is just tell them. Well, you know, there's truth in that. Nobody's smart enough to be totally wrong, so there is truth in that. But it's one of those workaround things. Because if we really get down to it and we keep doing this sneak attack evangelism stuff and we keep getting people turning us down, sooner or later people get this heart and they go, well, I'm not doing that anymore. So we have to have good answers. Okay, so let me summarize and, and get it at this point. I believe that one of the pitfalls of just the facts is that it becomes a data transfer exercise and we totally lose the person that we say we care about. Here's another pitfall here on the just the facts part of it. And that is, <laughs> all right, if you're an attorney, uh, I'm really glad that you're here. Some of my favorite church people through the years have been attorneys. Um, but this is going to sound like a shot at an attorney, and it's not that. It's a shot at the methods that we have adopted. If we don't kind of devolve down to the data transfer level, one of the other things that we would do is we would devolve down to, okay, this is an argument. It's an intellectual argument, and I'm going to present my case in such a way that I'm going to win. And so you picture an attorney in front of a jury and he's arguing a case, whether defense or prosecution, and he's arguing so that he can win. And his whole job is to convince these jurors that he's right and that he wants them to take his side. And much of the evangelism that we have seen through the years that America has rejected largely is that intellectual combat where we try to win them over and get them to say the prayer. I find it interesting 
that in the confrontations that Jesus has or the encounters that Jesus has with, okay, we talked about Nicodemus. Let's go to John 4, the woman at the well. It's not that there's not intellectual information there that Jesus has given her. He gets a little bit of an intellectual back and forth with her. He certainly did with Nicodemus. But Jesus is not content to just have the, the encounter. And Jesus, if you really read your New Testament carefully, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about eternal life like after you die. It's that he tends to offer life right now that you don't have. And so in this exchange with the woman at the well, you know that story, right? This woman who was a woman, probably not a lady, but she was certainly a woman, and she was so stigmatized by some of her behavior that she couldn't even go and be at the well in the, when all the other real ladies were. And so she goes out at this time, Jesus is there, he sends his disciples into town to get food, and Jesus has this encounter with her. And in the process of doing that, he so tags her life and offers her living water that when it's all said and done, she witnesses. Remember how that story ends up? It does not say that she went and she sat down and gave them all of these four points of the Roman road to salvation. She goes into town and she says, come and see a man. And I'll put it in my terms. You go back and read the exact words. But I think she said essentially, come and meet a guy who's changing my life. You see, that's not an intellectual argument. That's not a data transfer. That's a life transformation. You may be sitting here by now or listening. We have millions that listen by the radio. You may be sitting here thinking, why is he doing this? And the answer is, I want us to be really good at engaging people with the good news of Jesus Christ. But in order for us to be really good at that, there's a good chance that we're going to have to abandon some of the tactics that have led us into a post-Christian America. The people that you work with, they don't care, many of them. Well, you know, we're in East Texas. We're, we're 30 to 40 years behind Portland. I'm grateful for that, I think. But that doesn't mean we're any more Christian than they are. People need life. They don't need updated information. Well, they might need that, but they need life mostly. It's no accident that Jesus in John chapter 10 comes and he says, I have come that you may have Life. So are we life brokers or are we canned speech givers? Which gives me the second part of this. All of that first part is when tied back to what Luke has written in his first book and how we process that. But this is the part that I call I just can't put it down part. Most data is not so riveting that you just can't put it down. Teresa, my wife Teresa, has been reading uh, all of our uh, lives, all my married life. Tomorrow we will celebrate 35 years of marriage. 
And from the very beginning, thank you, you pray for her. Yeah, pray for her, applaud for her. She's had to work awfully hard. Um, so um, she, she loves to read. Uh, now, I read, but I don't read the stuff she reads. Okay? She reads stuff that she can read like right before we go to bed. Now, I'm this, I'm this crazy kind of a thought process that believe that a bed and it's time to go to bed at night. It's time to go to bed, go to sleep, right? So I lay down and within a minute or two, most times I'm gone. Right, and so for 35 years I've gone to bed to sleep, and she goes to bed and she reads, and I'm good with that because I can not have to read. Um, but she just recently finished. She found a new author and a new book series. I have no idea what it was. I'm sure it's clean though, and um, she has been. I can't put this down. And so now, and I mean, we went on vacation a couple of weeks ago. We we're driving in the car and. You know, she's reading and get to the hotel and she's reading and we come home and she's reading and she just like can't put it down until it's finished. Is that how you are with Jesus? Let me, let me change the question a little bit. How long has it been since you have been amazed by Jesus? How long has it been since your, your experience with him has been so fresh that you, it's like you just can't put him down? I, I think we live, one of the reasons we're in a post-Christian age in America today is because I think many Christians have grown rather bored with Jesus. We know the stories. We know how it all turns out. We got our little fire insurance policy. So we just get a little bored with him. How long has it been since you were freshly encountered by the living Lord? Go back with me to a couple of experiences our life of Jesus. Teresa and I were talking on our vacation, I think it was, I don't remember, time just kind of gets all pushed together for me, but um, maybe we were watching a TV show or something and it was about time travel. And she said, if you could go back in time, where would you go? Oh, man, I've had so many mistakes in my life. I think some things I'd go back and probably redo, but... uh, I thought about it for a minute, and I said, you know, there's, I, I have a hard time pulling them apart, but let me just give you a few of my thoughts. If we could go back in time, where would you go to, uh, to any point in time? I think I would go first to that boat on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are in it. It's the middle of the night, and Jesus comes walking across the water at them. Now, I'd love to see that. I wouldn't get out of the boat, just to be transparent with you. I'm pretty sure my faith would be such, like, oh, no. Go ahead, Peter. We'll throw you out there. Imagine. But you see, we know that story so well, and we think through that story so often, that it just becomes, oh, yeah, that's one of the stories of the life of Jesus. But you put yourself in the boat, let's see how that's impacting you. Or maybe I would go to... 
two different instances that happened on a hillside there around the Sea of Galilee and having been at the Sea of Galilee and seeing that hill country around it, this is a lot more fresh for me. But uh, you know, the one time that they're out there and all these people are there and Jesus has been teaching and healing and all that kind of stuff and, uh, and it gets to be time to eat. And so the disciples come and they're, hey, you need to send these people home. Jesus says, no, let's feed them. Remember the story? Wow, y'all there? You remember the story? Jesus said, oh, let's feed them. One of the disciples are just like me and you. Well, feed them? What are we going to feed them with? He's got this little punk kid and all he's got is lunch. And Jesus says, that's perfect. And so he feeds thousands of people. Aaron talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Thousands of people. And it's like the lunch buffet at the Chinese food place. There's just plenty. How long has it been since you have been amazed by Jesus Christ? Or have you gotten just a little bored with how it all is? Another one for me is I'd go to that hillside where the Sermon on the Mount is being laid out there and Jesus in his teaching lights a fire in the hearts of people. I'm afraid that we pastors have made it easy for evangelism to get pushed down to just part of your everyday Christian responsibility instead of you got to know my Jesus. You see, when we reduce it to a formula and to a canned speech and we feel like we got to sneak attack somebody on their front porch, it might just be because we've lost the wonder of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Luke is going to address that. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. So you got the backward look in my first book, but he also goes with the forward look. This is not a finished thing. Jesus is still working. Luke writes this after the ascension. Luke writes this later. I mean, you know, we, somewhere towards the end of this, we start seeing Luke insert himself into the docudrama that this is. But what we find is Luke, as he writes this, he's looking backwards, but he's also looking at his present, and he is convinced that it is not a dead enterprise. And so he says, I just got to tell you about this. There's your witness. You see, when you get right down to it, a witness is someone who has experienced, has seen something. So those people, you've heard me say it many times, Brian, come on up. Those people in your circle that desperately need life, you've heard me say it this way, God has strategically placed you into a circle of people who desperately need life. They don't need your canned speech. They need life. It happens to be that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. 
So for us, as we engage people around us with the good news of Jesus Christ, don't give them religion. Give them life. Point them to Jesus. After the early service today, and I preached this, I had a sweet lady caught me, and she said, so how do you do that? I said, what do you mean? She said, how do you do that? I love the accountability of that because it's not enough for her for, to hear me talk about it. She said, I don't know how you do it. Here's how I do it. Maybe it'll help you, right? I just get involved in the lives of people. And when I get involved in the lives of people, I begin to see that people have real problems. And I happen to believe that my problems are not that much different than their problems. And Jesus steps into the midst of my problems and, she, and he, he does stuff with me. You see, that's the difference between just selling a life insurance, I mean, excuse me, a, a fire insurance policy and selling life insurance. Jesus promises to walk with us, giving us life, taking us through life, and letting us be life brokers on his behalf. Who in your circle needs life? And what are you going to tell them? What will you say? Let's pray. And so, Father, as we come to this, another opportunity to take truth from your word, life-changing reality, we pray that you would help us to wear it well. Show us individually, corporately, those people that you have placed into our circles. Help us to own maybe some of those shortcuts that we've tried to put into place that actually are counterproductive. Help us to experience you in a fresh way and then drive us out into a community and a world that has no use for you. But help us to be faithful. Help us to be real and help us to be effective in Jesus' name.